0: Before we can move forward with the Reformation, we have to know what we're reforming. So we're going to take a quick, very quick overview or review of um, what we covered last year in church history. This is from the 1st century on up to the 15th century. So uh, highlighted a couple of names there. Irenaeus and Tertullian were uh, pretty big theologian bishops uh, in, in the early centuries of the church where uh, Irenaeus was big for consolidating the power of the the local bishop so if anybody wanted to know what was heresy and what was orthodoxy Irenaeus would say well what does the bishop say
1: and that was important because what main heresy was Irenaeus fighting do you recall
0: I would guess not having taken
1: the class but maybe it was Jesus God that was just a century later but that's a really good guess because that was the major uh, debate in the 4th century uh, and 5th century, 5th particularly. But Irenaeus fought Gnosticism, um, at both secular and religious Gnosticism. And so it was important because there was no structure, remember, at the time? There was very little structure and so people, how do you know truth? So it... it it was not as bad in Irenaeus' days as it sounds today. What does the bishop say?
0: And, and this sort of brings to light what the church was experiencing at that time in those, those early centuries, is that they were being persecuted from without, but they also had pollution from within, that those uh, who were in sheep's clothing were passing off Gnosticism or, or other uh, heresies or false teachings as Christianity, and it needed to be pure. So that, that persecuted church ended up being pure church because they held on to uh, what what Christ had handed down through the apostles and were willing to pay with their lives for that. And uh, Tertullian is another one from, from Africa uh, writing in Latin. He was the one who coined the, the term Trinitas, or in English, Trinity. Uh, so he was an early runner of uh, the Trinitarian debate, which would then come into play uh, A couple centuries later, with uh, this era of Constantine, and with Constantine came the conversion of not only the emperor, but of the entire empire, that uh, Constantine and those emperors following him would not only lift the persecution of Christians, but actually transfer the state religion into Christianity, so that we have a popular and polluted church where It was popular, it was the religion of the people at that point. It was cool to be a Christian because you were just like the emperor, and not only so, but with that, we had a lot of pagans who were continuing to worship in their own, their old style, but had to please the state. So they slapped Christian on the label and ended up polluting the church from within. But during that time, since there was Less persecution of Christians, uh, we have the ability then to meet for universal councils, and this is where Athanasius steps up to the plate and is a, a tremendous defender of, of orthodoxy by being the one who uh, defends. That's the one. And puts to the forefront the Nicene Creed and the the argument that Jesus Christ not only is man, but in fact is God Himself, God of God and Light of Light.
1: And who was uh, Athanasius? Um, chief opponent. Who was he combating? Do you remember? It starts with an A, actually. Arius. Arius. Arius, yes. And and Arius had a particular phrase that they put the song. Anybody remember that? Which made it very popular. There was a time when he was not, and I don't know how it was sung, in Greek or Latin, you know, but. um but because they were, he was able to do that. It became very popular. Somebody fleshed that out. What does it mean? There was a time when he was not. That Jesus was created. Right, and what scripture might you look at to say that? John chapter one. Uh, so you're against that or for that? No, against. How, how, why would? How, what scripture would you look at to support the idea that Jesus was created? His birth, yep. And also Colossians 1, where it talks about Jesus is the firstborn of the brethren. So he was the most important, Athanasius, I mean, excuse me, Arius would say, which is also another reason, I started to ask the question earlier, why is it important for us not only to think biblically, but also theologically? If you're thinking biblically just from the, point of, okay, I'm going to, what does this verse mean? What do you do with the verse that says Jesus was the firstborn? It's talking about his status as a king, as a ruler. Uh, And you have to understand that from a theological perspective. You have to understand the doctrine of Christ. And Athanasius was the first one to help us begin to form that. Kim, what you were asking, though, Irenaeus actually did have some Things to say about that as well, and Tertullian, but it wasn't until the 5th century, late in the 4th and early in, well, really early in the 5th century, uh, no, I'm sorry, 4th century in the 300s, about the time of Constantine, that this became a real issue in the church. It had never been hammered out. The Trinity had never been uh, formulated like it was at the, Nica- at the Council of Nicaea. Uh, even though Tertullian gave us that formula of um, three persons, one substance, one essence, he didn't use the same language that was used later. Tertullian had done that late in the second century in the 180s, 190, I believe. Is that Am I correct in that, Neil? Or I believe that's right. I, I'm, I'm in, that, in the right century, hmm. right? Uh, but later it became... Very popular to believe that Jesus was not God. He was created. He was very special, the most important human ever created. And God conferred on him some divine status. But he wasn't coequal, coeternal co-eternal with God.
0: And having uh, debated and won that orthodoxy, then sort of faced another challenge from without. And as the, the sun was setting on the Roman Empire... Vandals, the Goths, all those barbarians came through, destroyed Rome, continued on down to the the coastline of Africa, which was the home of probably the most influential theologian of all time, we could say, because Augustine influenced both the Catholic Church, uh, the Roman Catholic Church of the West, as well as Protestants, but for different reasons. And uh, he was another Latin teacher and theologian and bishop, probably not as influential in the Eastern Church, the the, Orthodox, or the Greek Church, but uh, both Catholics and Protestants can look to Augustine for for various reasons, and uh, his, his influence continues today, which we want to look at in movie form in, in just a couple months.
1: One of the things that I learned this past year, and I, I should have known, but I didn't know before, was that Augustine did not know Hebrew or Greek, and that actually impacted some of his theology, some of the errors that Augustine made were partly because he didn't know the original languages. Uh, Jerome used to chide him for not knowing the original languages, and yet Augustine was uh, probably, as Neil said, the most influential theologian of all time. Um, Well, since... Since Paul, of course, in the writings of Scripture. I've mentioned another name, Jerome. Who was Jerome? What's he known for? He Translated into Latin. He translated Scripture into Latin. Yes. And Augustine, um, you know, used that Latin translation, I'm assuming, uh, of, of, of Scripture, since he didn't know Greek and, and, and Hebrew. But Jerome did that. What's it called? Vulgate. The The Vulgate.
0: And with uh, Augustine, we see a transition period between the early church and now the, the Middle Ages where uh, there was the, the Bishop of Rome. His position was rising to, uh, to be the, the most powerful position within the church. So he was known as the Pope, and there are debates as to who was the first Pope. We looked at a, at a few of them. We kind of looked at Gregory perhaps being the most influential and, and the one that personified what we think of as the Pope. And during that time, the, the church continued to slip away. There was a, a loss of uh, literature, literacy. Uh, culture began to devolve more regionally and locally rather than a unified empire. And because of that, the church was the one thing that held Western civilization together. And since it became more focused on culture and its own standing and and power, it lost a lot of its uh, purity and uh, desire for theological pursuit. And we have a lot of error creeping in. And some of those who either added to that or combated that, uh, you see up there is Anselm and Aquinas. Now, if you remember, those were the right around the turn of the millennium where we have the start of the Crusades and not a whole lot going on as far as new doctrine or pursuit of being or living biblically. However, Anselm, very, very insightful for his time, put forward a few observations that were very helpful, one being the satisfaction theory of the atonement. Does anybody remember what that combated or, or what it consisted of?
1: Just think out loud, and it's okay if if, if it, satisfaction theory of the atonement. Well, the, the atonement satisfied God's requirement of death for sin rather than being ransomed or bought from Satan who had us. Under his right. control of so. Yes, Augustine was big on that devil ransom theory—the idea that Jesus had to die so that God would, sort of a trick, he tricked Satan and now he's bought us back. And we're and you can understand that there's some there's some aspect of that theory that you can understand why he would get in scripture. We're we're bought with a price, you know. We don't belong to to ourselves. We, we don't, our bodies don't belong to us. We're bought with a price. Um, and ransom, the word ransom is used. But the satisfaction theory, Anselm may be the most important theologian you've never heard of. Um, and then also, the belief to understand.
0: I, I think that, when put in context, uh, juxtaposed to Aquinas, is very interesting, very um, helpful that he came from a position of faith, that he does believe Christ and the Word, and because he believes, he prays, Lord, help me to understand, help me to reason out and rationalize all these things, nature and and understanding Scripture, out of this belief. Whereas opposed to that, we have Aquinas who sits on the other side who says, I understand. Now, he, he he would claim to be a believer also, and he came from the position of, I understand, I rationalize, I reason these things out so that I can believe. Uh, does anyone else see the, the, the difference in that? Can, it, can you appreciate that? It's pretty significant. It is significant.
1: Yes, I believe so that I might understand. What a, what a beautiful expression of faith, of biblical faith.
0: Well, the scriptures say that uh, the natural man doesn't understand the things of God because they're spiritually discerned. So you've got to have that spirit of God within you by believing, then you can understand. And that very same sentiment, I think, is played out in their philosophical arguments for the, the existence of God, where Anselm comes, puts forth the ontological argument. The dumbed-down version is, uh, you can know God exists because he exists, therefore you can know him.
1: <laughs> yes, I think he said it's something like that than which nothing greater can be thought.
0: That's a definition for yeah. God. You can, can, the fact that we can conceive, conceive of, God of no greater means that he exists.
1: Yes, and the fact that we can conceive of nothing greater than him. And as well. being
0: is greater than not being, so therefore he yeah. must exist. And then uh, again on the other side, Aquinas uh, puts forth several. I think there's five different uh, points to his teleological argument, which is looking at nature around us, the, sort of the clockmaker, where nature itself uh, begs of a creator. So he looks at uh, nature and, and reason to get to the existence of God.
1: That's, uh, you know, this past year, Allison and I uh, went to visit her daughter, my stepdaughter, Sarah and she was studying abroad in Italy. And we were coming back, and we sat next to a lady who was a microbiologist uh, on her way actually to participate in a conference um, in Canada. They're working on trying to understand ways to attack the acid that comes in these cancer cells. And we just had like six hours of witnessing. It was unbelievable. But it was just a very casual approach to it you know wasn't too pressed but along the way she started off by saying and she's from Denmark and she teaches at the University of Denmark and some of her colleagues were in school with Tim Metz so there's a really interesting (laughs) connection at Cornell but she you know starts off by saying um, you know not many people believe in my country well then later after we had talked quite a bit and she was telling me about the cancer cells and I know nothing about these but I was asking semi-intelligent questions apparently which I can't remember anymore but <laughs> what she was telling me about how the acid gets outside of the cell and attacks but you can't you can't attack the acid without doing actually more harm than good and I I was talking about the fall and how that's my understanding of the reasons and, and so then she said you know, you would think that what we study would move us away from a creator, but actually it makes you think there's some kind of design, and for which I was quite helpful. And then I was talking to Tim about it. Just a couple of days later, he was here, and he said, yeah, uh, microbiologist, what's the other term for microbiologist? Uh, he said, uh, more than any field of science, these people see the design and recognize that it's just too fantastical to think that this just happened. And that it holds together, the fact that it all holds together. And at, at least at some level, that's what equi- He wasn't that developed scientifically. Nobody was in that day, although they were great, incredible minds. You read their stuff and you're like, what? Uh, but that was, he was in that direction
0: And and Aquinas' writings ended up being, for many centuries afterward, the standard textbook of of, um, Catholic monasteries and seminaries that they would have to study and learn Aquinas uh, and be familiar with his his theology. Which moves us then, if you remember, towards the latter part of of last year as the forerunners of the Reformation. Now these guys, I think, are, are great. They're awesome because they did the very thing that Luther did, but without the measurable success. And support. And support. Yeah. Right. And, Which allowed uh, for the success. Because the, the politicians, the, the governors and kings, you know, the, the regional kings and lords of, of those areas, did not support these men like Peter Waldo and, and uh, Wycliffe and John Huss. They had a following within their region, their local area, of those who were faithful to the to Christ and His Word, but their um, popularity never really spread very much. Uh, Wycliffe was in what would be England, Great Britain, and was actually trying to translate the Bible into English, and said very similar things to what we'll find uh, Luther said that you know justification is by faith, and Huss picked up on that uh, just a few years later in Bohemia and. And the very same thing happened. There was actually wars that took place because of uh, this theological revolution or reformation that was, under, that was going on. But the social climate wasn't at the point yet for, for that kindling, for those sparks to really take off into flames. So that's why they're merely forerunners and not the, the focus of the reformation. Do we know if Luther would have been familiar with any of those guys? Yes, he he was. uh, And actually, what we'll find out in a few months, uh, two months, when we cover Luther, is that during one of his debates with, uh, I don't know if you remember from the movie the other night, uh, Cardinal Cajetan. There were actually, I think, two Cajetans that he ended up debating. One, Uh, he, Luther, theologically and point by point, won The argument, the debate, but in so doing walked into Cajetan's uh, trap. Cajetan said, you sound like Huss. And what did they do to Huss? They burned him, burned him at the stake. And that's why you can understand that his name, Goose, he said, you may cook this goose, but in a hundred years there will be a swan that you cannot roast nor boil. And uh, Luther would have been familiar with Wycliffe and Huss and probably Many others who uh, followed in their footsteps. Since there would only be a century to a century and a half before, and at that point the printing press would have been gotten going uh, in in full motion. Though uh, as a monk, he would have uh, a monk at the University of Wittenberg would have studied a lot of those writings and what the church had done to quench uh, revolt. Which brings us up to the Reformation and what we're going to see during this period. Are we still in the Reformation? Hopefully we're still reforming, but we're going to look at the origins and what took place during that era. Not only that, but as the decades turn into centuries, how those uh, initial European churches who found ground to stand on against the Catholic Church uh, began to prosper, but Uh, splinter in different areas, especially as it transferred over the Atlantic into America, what that looked like. And we're actually going to look at a couple of uh, prominent American theologians and what they taught and how they influenced uh, the church for, for centuries to come. And we're also going to look at modern battles. I hope you understand that the importance of church history is very rarely do we see a conflict today that has not already arisen and been addressed in the past. It just gets recycled. It's new packaging, but it's the same thing. So if you're looking at the current state of the church, the persecuted church overseas, or the church in America, what we're dealing with, how we can stay pure and, and draw those lines of, well, we have to believe this. You cannot believe that and still call yourself an orthodox Christian. Those battles we're going to see shaped over these centuries, over the next few months, when we look at American theology uh, progressing in the 19th century and the 20th century and then on into the 21st century. Are there any questions or are there any topics that anyone really wants to look at? Uh, some of those resources I'm going to put out online for you, I hope you go to them this weekend. Some of those questions are going to be, what are you looking forward to to learning? Is there a person or an era that you, that you really want to learn about? And if you know that now, tell us now. You know, or otherwise you can put it out online.
1: The resources, uh, especially the ones that Neil... Puts together are amazing. The timelines, the maps. Uh, if you were here last semester, you remember how valuable they were. So, really want to encourage you to go to that.
0: Um. They're valuable for me. I need to know where these things happen. <laughs> all right. As far as the review and overview, that's all I have for you. Uh, next time we meet will be in September, on the tenth again, seven o'clock to about eight fifteen, depending on questions. Hopefully we'll field some discussion and we're going to cover the Renaissance and Reformation. So that's going to be a a marriage between the social reform and the church reform. So we're going to get a broad view before we focus down on Luther and Calvin and and those other players. Are there any questions about tonight or what we have to look forward to? There is. Make sure you get Volume 2 and not Volume 1. Volume 1 was for uh, the first 15th centuries, and Volume 2 is going to cover the Reformation forward. Uh, I'll put that out onto the group, so if you go to that tomorrow, that should be there. But I believe the chapters are Chapter 1 and 5 and 6. Anything else? All right. I Before hope you're you looking close, forward to it as much as I am.
1: Before you close, I want to ask from last semester, um, what event, what person was the most significant to you? What did you learn last semester that has impacted the way that you think? I, and I know there's, there, there are a lot of different things that you could point to, some of you, uh, but anything in particular?
0: think about the formation of canon, or the debates over the Trinity, the rise of the power of the Pope, the persecution that the church suffered.
1: I think for me it was mostly the rise of the Catholic Church, because even having attended for a couple of years, I didn't get the history to know where it came from and how it grew from being a universal church to be in
0: the Catholic church. It was very subtle, wasn't it?
1: Until Gregory. Gregory did so many things. He was a very... Gregory was a good man, but in the, what, 6th century, I believe he was, purgatory was codified. I mean, just so many of the doctrines of of the Catholic church with which we would disagree uh, strongly took root and um, or if somebody correct me if I'm wrong about purgatory was Gregory was that later before it was codified? But Gregory moved us, moved the Catholic Church in that direction I think he from a little C belief. yes, yeah. little C to big C you know Catholic or actually from big big C to little C if we look at it in reverse.
0: That's one of the themes that you may see throughout the year, is that ideas begin small, with good intentions, but when they come out on the other end, they have very large effects and often very negative effects. It's not always the intent, but uh, it's if, if we get off course by a little bit, eventually that course is going to be very far away from our destination.
1: And the other theme will be when you're trying to remember, you know, you'll get, they'll all sort of mix together sometimes, but that's okay.
0: Well, if there's nothing else, I'm going to bid you adieu and look forward to uh, what we can learn over this month, and I'll see you next time.